Welcome, everyone, to episode 237 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we're back. We're so back for... Oh, check my notes. Oh, maybe not. Uh, well, we're definitely here to discuss the Walt Disney Company's latest endeavor to remake all their animated classics in a live-action, mostly cash-grabby format. But before we dig into that and how much gold they may or may not have found under the sea, with me, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how was your little mini early summer vacation these past couple weeks? Good. Uh, yeah, we're, we're getting into the, the early uh, review there, I guess, right out the gate. We're just... Uh... I think that's just the general out. sentiment of the podcast about yeah. live action no, it, remakes of Disney movies. It definitely is. I don't think that will come as news or a surprise to anyone yeah. uh, listening if you know our podcast. But uh, yeah, I, I'm good. I, I don't know if if uh, it's fair to say my mini summer vacation. I have had a couple days off here, I guess. I uh, have taken a couple trips, but I do have longer vacations coming up actually in July. Sure. So I meant just I more the fact that we were off last week. <laughs> But yes. Yes. Oh, you from the podcast. I feel like we haven't sure, recorded yeah. a podcast in like two and a half weeks because we recorded that podcast early, if yeah. I remember correctly. So yeah, it has been a while. Of course, you know, our Anderson podcasts have still been coming out. Hopefully you've been checking checking yeah. those out. We're we're getting close to the end on on those and as it gets time for Asteroid City to be released. But um Absolutely. always enjoy having movies to watch, Scott, and to talk about here. Um even if they are the Little Mermaid, so one week sure. off is enough for me. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I Karen was asking me on Saturday as I informed her that I was having to go march to see the Little Mermaid. She was like, "It seems like neither you or Scott are very excited about seeing this movie. Why are you doing it?" And I'm like, "Well, we had this or we had Fast X, <laughs> so we weren't we were yeah. really sure which pill to swallow there because uh, we as took I, one week I, off already, so we couldn't t- we couldn't really take two weeks off in a row. We didn't feel that way at least." As I posted on my story, you know, the 95% of the time I love doing this podcast and this was the the other 5%, but you know, it's worth it to me. I mean, sure, we could have reviewed like You Hurt My Feelings, for example, right? The new sure. Nicole Hobsonter movie, but I just don't think there's any interest probably out there among our listeners uh, for hearing us talk about that. Perhaps there's no interest in hearing us talk about The Little Mermaid too. Like, I guess we'll, I guess we'll see it 20s. in the receipts. After late twenties white dudes, like. yeah, um, but <laughs> yeah, definitely the more higher profile release of the the last couple of weeks. Yeah i i was i was i was online uh, first mistake this weekend. Yeah. Um, seeing some some chatter about the Little Mermaid. Uh, thankfully, my timeline is entirely entirely Succession uh, discourse now, so that's much preferred over Little Mermaid discourse. But, uh, you know, I had to be reminded that apparently this film is controversial and whether or not a black woman can lead a movie is still uh, something that needs to be discussed in 2023. But I don't know if we're really going to be taking that tack. We will be discussing the live action fantasy musical adaptation of the 1989 animated film and original Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, the same name, The Little Mermaid on today's podcast. Disney brought in musical and I didn't really know how 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 quite to phrase this aquatic aficionado Rob Marshall uh, to direct uh, that is of course of Chicago Pirates of the Caribbean Four, and Mary Poppins returns fame with his Mary Poppins co-collaborator David McGee to write and cast the aforementioned young singer songwriter Halle Bailey for the titular role of Ariel as we all probably know the Little Mermaid is all about Bailey's Ariel a mermaid princess whose fascination with the human world runs counter to the strict orders of her father King Triton played by Javier Bardem forbidding contact with the above water inhabitants 
After Ariel saves a human man who happens to be the prince of a nearby Caribbean island, Ariel and Prince Eric, played by Jonah Howard King, are both smitten, but the mermaid flees from approaching human voices before the prince can come to full consciousness. Triton scolds Ariel for such behavior, pushing her straight into the tentacles of her evil aunt, Ursula, played by Melissa McCarthy, who offers her a deal. Ursula will grant Ariel the chance to fulfill her wish to become human and live at Eric's side if she receives true love's first kiss from Eric before sunset of the third day. The trick? Ariel must give up her mermaid gifts to become human, including her voice and siren song. The trickier trick? Ariel won't remember she has to kiss Eric to fulfill her side of the bargain. If she fails, Ariel belongs to Ursula forever and ever. Luckily, Ariel won't be totally alone on this adventure as her companions, the Fish Flounder, played by Jacob Tremblay, the Crab Sebastian, voiced by David Diggs, and the Seagull Scuttle, voiced by Aquafina, are all present to nudge both Ariel and Prince Eric towards what hopefully will be the best outcome. Scott, was Disney and Rob Marshall's live-action reimagining of this nautical classic a tropical splash of the best kind to start the summer, or was this remake the equivalent of a bucket of cold salt water thrown on your face? Yeah, so um, we've been a bit sniffy about the the remakes here, I guess. Uh, Except you know. for Aladdin, I will say we, we I think we were positive well, on Aladdin. Yeah, you. Were I was going to say just in yeah. in the intro to this podcast, but uh, yeah, it's actually been a little bit since we talked talked about one, a proper one. You know, sure. Uh, Mulan was probably at. Well, yeah, I was going to say Cruella doesn't quite count because I don't know that it it would be classified as a remake. I mean, I guess it is telling certain events. This, of the same events, just from a different. I think perspective. people throw it in, uh, but you're right; it is like a little bit yeah. different than than the. Yeah, others. but I, I guess I think of Mulan as being the last proper one that we did in 2020. Um, yeah, and you know we've talked about it before. There are sort of these different camps that these remakes seem to fall into. There's something like Mulan, right, which is takes the story in a completely different direction. To you know, is is a completely different sort of film. Is more of like an action, you know, no dragon. Yeah, no dragon, no songs, you know, again, stripping a lot of stuff away from the original. Then you have The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, right, which are the shot-by-shot remakes. Um, And then I think you have stuff like um, Aladdin and Dumbo, which probably falls somewhere in the middle of... um, You don't think Dumbo was a completely new take on that story? I don't know. No, no, I, I don't think it was a completely new take. Yeah. I do think there's. I can't a, believe Colin know, Farrell was in that movie. Sorry, I'm just having like traumatic yeah. flashbacks to that movie. A lot of Tim Tim Burton in there, obviously, but you know the, sure. the bones are there still of the real of the original story. And then yeah, Aladdin. You know, a lot of people are down on that film. I definitely think we are some of the bigger fans of it that are out there. I mean, I haven't gone back and watched it. I haven't felt a strong desire to go back and watch it or anything. But I enjoyed it at the time, and more than that, I thought that it, you know represented sort of the the ideal scenario maybe of these remakes which is um you know it's faithful enough to the original but also you can see the the vision behind it you can see the the director imparting his own style and making some changes that for the most part make sense um in the to the original story Mm -hmm. so now we arrive at this scott which um it's difficult to say which camp this falls into. It probably is closer to the shot by shot, uh, you know, remake, yeah. but it they added a lot though. They did, but 
you know, they added a lot with the Lion King too, supposedly. And we had the conversation at the time, like, where did it, like, how did, how did the, all of this add up to make such a longer film? And I, I guess I'm still asking the question. Yeah, I have you know, to go I check understand. run times. It was Lion King 50-whatever minutes longer, though, because this one is 50-something minutes longer. It wasn't quite as long as as much longer as that, but yeah, um, it, it was a little bit longer. And yeah. again, we were having trouble parsing out. Now here, obviously, there are some new songs, right? They add a little bit more to the backstory of Ursula. They add a little bit more to the backstory of Prince Eric. I was going to say, so there was you can... 20 minutes in this movie before we even get a song, like before we even get the first song, which yeah. definitely is not the case in the animated film. Right. Um, so you can point to some some areas, but... Um, yeah, but but for the most part, like this is just the Little Mermaid, right? Like they're not making a whole lot of significant changes to anything. It's more just like rounding out people's backstories, um, you know, adding a few songs, uh, you know, I guess to add just a little bit more texture to this world and whatnot. Um, and, you know, um, otherwise, you try, you know, again, like I said, trying to build out like Ursula's backstory and stuff like that. But otherwise remaining very faithful to the story of the little mermaid and the, the familiar beats. And obviously the, the other songs that you, you know, and love, although there, there is a change made to one of those, which we can, we can talk about. Um, but obviously that was much discussed too. And even in the lead up to the movie um, and Scott, I just don't, and the, in the end, even though there are these changes and whatnot, I don't understand the purpose for this film. I don't think it was necessary to make this live action remake. And at the end of the day, I don't really know who is, you know, in the long run going, when they want to watch The Little Mermaid, who is going to sit down and say, oh yeah, I want to watch the live action and not the animated version, right? I don't think that this adds anything um, to the the original that wasn't, you know, already there. It adds anything of substance and of, of quality and of value um, for the most part to the original. Um, and actually in some areas, you know, isn't as strong. Like, you know, you think with these live action remakes, right? Like one one thing they could do is make, you know, these even more impressive visual pr productions right nowadays. But that's not the case with this movie. Like the the animated film, and I've seen it twice maybe. It's not one that I go back to or anything, although I do enjoy the animated film. Um, it, it looks better than this movie does, right? And there was one concern that I had going in with some of the clips that had been premiered on, on social media and stuff that, wow, this really looks dark and grimy, you know, just like every other big budget movie now, nowadays, it seems like. And while it probably wasn't as egregious as I was fearing from the, the clips, um, there, there are definitely it's moments of muddy visuals and especially towards the end, right? Especially like the final confrontation with Ursula, which is where these movies just seem to go wrong and, and Marvel movies too. And, and, you know, it is like that the action climax and, and things like that, like the third act, it seems. I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about something like Shang-Chi, for example, which was like actually a really enjoyable movie and then just falls off a cliff in the third act when it becomes this, you know, visual mishmash of just, you know, bland, boring stuff just colliding with each other. And I kind of feel the same way about what we got here ultimately. Like I was just checked out of the movie at that point. And obviously the runtime is part of that. Um, Scott, I do think the cast is good. If you have to point to like the best part of the movie, it's probably them. Um, you know, there are some exceptions to that, which we can talk about. I mean, 
we have to have an Aquafina conversation, I think, because um, yeah, the, there's a lot going on with her. You want to you want to talk about the scuttlebutt? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about the scuttlebutt, I think. But um, okay. but otherwise, you know, I think a lot of the principal players are good. I think Hallie Bailey is good. I think Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. I think David Diggs as innocent. Sebastian. David Diggs innocent. Yeah, I mean that was perfect casting. If we're being honest, like I, you know, he he is perfect for for that role, um, sure. and it comes very naturally to him. And so I think that part of it works well. But again, I don't think you know having familiar faces or whatever playing these roles is like justification enough for making the movie in the first place. And you know, sure. of course if we're going to peel back the curtain and be cynical about it, the justification for making this movie is that it's going to make money. Right. And it is making money. Hopefully um, film costs them $250 yeah. million to make. So we'll see. Yeah. And again, it's hard to see where it all went, but um, you don't think no, the underwater visuals, sorry. You don't, you well, don't that's think what they... I was going to say, especially <laughs> yeah. in light of something like avatar, yeah. the way of water, which has kind of just ruined underwater. Look, I'm just glad that you brought it up first and not me. Cause I feel yeah. like I'm starting to, to, to get a bad rap uh, amongst our, our listeners. No, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, like I said, it is kind of ruined underwater visuals. But even by any standard, I don't think these are particularly impressive. Maybe a couple moments, but otherwise. There's some scenes, Scott, where it literally just looked like... I, I have a lot of thoughts about the underwater elements of this movie, frankly. And I don't even mean it from like, a, oh, this is an Avatar point of view. Like, honestly, just putting that aside. Like, it frankly just looks like they CGI'd some bubbles in some scenes next, <laughs> next to some character faces. Um, which is, like, I hilarious. Wouldn't... I wouldn't dismiss that thought, honestly, but um, also the but yeah, underwater Scott, physics. Can we just sidebar one second? Underwater physics in this movie make no sense. Apparently, you can push you can push boxes off of ledges and they just they just automatically just fall down and, and hit sharks, <laughs> um, which is I don't think that's quite how it works, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I'm not sure. Gravity is is an interesting thing. Gravity is a fickle beast, but. Um, Look, it will float downwards. Don't get me wrong. I know that gravity still exists, but not but like drop like a stone. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was like, I'm not sure about that. Um, yeah, pro- probably not best to uh, examine that that uh, aspect of the film too deeply sure. because sure, yeah. uh, you know sure. it is it is a movie at the end of the day. But um, but yeah, now in the end, Scott, like I just don't don't think this movie. The, the positive qualities of this movie, right, the, pa- the which are mainly the cast, and then the things that were already good about the original Little Mermaid, right, those aren't enough to justify the existence of this much more bloated, much, you know, inferior looking and just altogether unnecessary um, film that I think just kind of exemplifies what is wrong with Disney's entire project to do live action remakes of these animated classics. They're classics for a reason. There's nothing more that we can do with them um, that is going to, I think, inspire future generations, like I said, just to seek out this movie instead of the original. I just, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't I, think Yeah, I, I I will say, I, look, I agree with your overall takes. Like, I'll get into that in a second. I do wonder because of the, the sort of, the race swap of it all, like sure. putting Halle Bailey in the lead role. I do think that that will have a particular appeal to some people um, in, in the future. Will they watch it because they think this version is, is like quote unquote superior shrug. I don't know. 
But I do think that, that it would make sense to me if some people were like, Oh, this is, you know, a black Disney princess. I want to watch this film because I see someone who looks like me in this movie, um, as opposed to insert generic white princess. I, I think that that is real. And I think that that is, that is understandable from my perspective. And it is, I mean, it's one of the reasons why Disney wanted to cast Halle Bailey in, in the role is to broaden the appeal of a classic animated film that has, you know, zero representation in the film. And that's true for a lot of Disney's animated, like older animated classics. So, I mean, we didn't even have a Disney princess until what the toad and the, is it the, the princess and the, the frog and the frog. Of yeah. The so like, yeah. yeah, I mean, that took, that was only like a decade, a decade and a half ago. So I, I think that that real, that real concerted effort at, at showing that these stories should like have representation beyond just your maybe stereotypical white princess. I think that's real. And I think that is a major attraction for people that said, like, again, going back to the previous point, like, I'm not sure that people will revisit this be because like, Oh, this version with scuttlebutt added is just so superior um, to other things. I, I, I don't think that that is necessarily the reason people would return to it, but I think that is a reason why people might, might come back to it and think that, um, you know, this is a version I want to revisit from time to time. Anyway, yeah, overall, I, I know there it's a mixed bag. This film's a mixed bag for me. I think I mostly come out negative on it. I, I was pleasantly surprised by the cast. I'll be honest. I, I was sort of um, stealing myself for the worst. Uh, and I think that there are some bad moments in the cast, no doubt about that, about that, we yeah. can, which we will get. Go ahead. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say about the cast is they are actually putting in effort, right? Which sure. the Lion King to me felt like a very, very perfunctory and very like everyone just showed up, collected their checks and then went home. Even James Earl Jones, right, who was in the original film, mm-hmm. was like sounded very tired and like over it. Because he is tired, I think. This part. But there was a, there was effort and care put into these performances, I think. Sure. Perhaps too much effort in some examples that we will talk about. But um you know otherwise i from my perspective i enjoy seeing that because i think that is just a problem again with these big budget movies in general as i think whether it's the people behind them whether it's the cast there is like a laziness about a lot of these films nowadays yeah i think yeah i i i think that the cast being being there for it and being up for it helps it is also one of those <laughs> films unlike the lion king where at least some of the performances are actually uh in camera is that the right way to, to phrase it i guess that they're doing like motion capture for the lion king and stuff actually i don't even know i'm, I'm not even going to dive into it i don't know what they're doing in the lion king um, we don't have to discuss it and that's okay um yeah. but you know halle bailey jonah howard king javier bardem melissa mccarthy yes there's obviously visual effects being added to these performances but there is a, an amount of acting that is happening in camera that i think does add you know, if you're making a live action film, not to just target the Lion King, because obviously a lot of the other live action remakes have had in camera work. Like it helps. It helps a lot to have actual real people in your live action movie and not just entirely be animals as a function of it. But I do think that Halle Bailey is great. I think Jonah Howard King, who's not someone I'd ever I don't think I've ever seen him in anything before. I'm not sure if he's been in other stuff or not. He plays uh, Laurie in the 2017 uh, TV version of Little Women. Uh, which is oh, where I actually instantly recognized him from that. But sure, he has the he has the look of it. Um, mm-hmm. I did think it was really strange 
uh, as an aside briefly about that. I'm getting, we're getting really distracted in this episode. I thought it was really strange that um, the prince of the Caribbean island whose mother is black is white. I know that he's like he's adopted. adopted. No, I know. I understand that he's adopted, but I was just felt like a little weird to me. Yeah. I was like, we really went so far. And then you did this. <laughs> um, doesn't seem entirely necessary, but OK. Uh, again, not a huge deal. Not something that bothered me that much. Just something I noticed. But yeah, the underwater stuff is really meh to me. Um, the physics, the CGI bubbles. I don't really. I'm glad that it felt like the film expanded a lot above above water in this film. I think a lot of the added scenes that get to that 52 extra minutes or whatever it was, um, I think they do happen above water. I think a lot of the stuff, you know, the f- opening scene where Eric is on the boat and he, and you're learning a little bit about him and how he and his, and his thoughts and his feelings about sea travel and his parents and being close minded, things like that. Like that's all added. There's a bunch of stuff where they're exploring the Island, which I think is added. I don't think there's that level of detail. In the animated film. Yeah, because there's the whole new song when she is like first for the first time going yeah. on land. Yeah. Whatever it's called. Yeah. So yeah. And but at the same time, I kind of share your sentiment that, you know, what did we really get out of adding 52 minutes to this runtime? Uh, I looked up the Lion King thought that was half an hour longer. Um like what what do we I I I get it at one on one on the one hand, and on the other hand. It adds a texture, maybe to to part of to the characters, but it doesn't do enough with the characters themselves to like really actually pay off the extra. Texture nobody was asking. Adding. Nobody was asking for this. Like nobody was asking for us to to know more about Prince Eric's backstory. Like, do you really think people cared about that out there? Like, I mean, yeah, I don't really have a value judgment on that. I just think like it's fun to add that texture, but it doesn't really feel like it pays off. Right. Like if you're going to put more detail and more richness into the film and the character perspective, you kind of need like a deeper, in my opinion, you need a deeper thematic payoff. If you're going to, if you're going to put that mileage in, it doesn't really do that. So yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think is the best, is the best way to put it. Uh, Visual. I actually didn't have as many problems as the visuals. I'll actually say the, the sort of the climax of this movie with Ursula, um, hilariously short I, I was i was i was messaging you a lot yeah. of stuff after i walked out of the film and i was just like man ursula really really fronting as this like really bad bitch and she just gets taken out by one hit from a wrecked ship they, is just they the overcorrected they overcorrected the problem again with a lot of contemporary big budget movies which is that these action climaxes go on for too long you know mm-hmm. we talked about it with like dungeons and dragons recently i thought it went on too long and um sure. and stuff like that um but yeah maybe maybe they could have i'm not gonna say they should have been should have been longer necessarily because no it's already two hours and 15 minutes but yeah. uh, i do I, I do hear where you're coming from that is that is one area where they felt it feels like they just kind of copied what was there from the, the animated eric is the one who defeats her in the animated and now it's like ariel again all, kind of just the part of the narrative that this movie is trying to reframe for per, for reasons i guess it's, it's fair to say is that you know women can be in charge and women can be you know leaders and all this stuff and women can have you mm-hmm. know uh take initiative and have say in all of this because you know we also have that 
um, the daughters now the other daughters of Triton are like the other mermaids training yeah. to be leaders of the underwater basically they're not just musical performers like yeah. they were in the original which again great I'm not sure who was asking for this but great uh-huh. yeah <laughs> gave, gave me gave me real like uh, wives of a Morton Joe vibes yeah <laughs> <laughs> in the film I was like man something weird's going on here I don't know um but luckily obviously the film didn't go that direction so yeah i, I just really I, i'm also not suggesting that that the climactic battle should be longer i'm not even necessarily saying that's like a note that i have for the film or a complaint i have i just thought it was funny that it just like one hit from a ship takes down this huge giant version of ursula who's like wielding a trident that zaps people into uh non-existence essentially um also don't understand don't understand the magic going on here don't know how javier bardem's triton comes back scott can someone someone needs to explain to me uh how he's still alive because he needs to be for okay. for the movie to do these final scenes Understood. D- don't think about it too hard scott well is he is he still i mean he's still alive at the end of the animated film too right no uh, yeah that's a good question i honestly yeah he is because because again he has to be there to like say to grant Ariel her freedom to like go on land and be a human. Like he, he, he's like the one who ultimately makes that decision. Right. Like, okay. So he was transformed into a polyp. So he's, he's like transformed into a small organism in the animated film. And then when Ursula is killed by Eric in the animated film, Mm -hmm. he then reverts to his original form. So he wasn't dead. But in this one, he's like killed by the eels. He's like shocked and like obliterated by the eels and just comes back. <laughs> oh, at yeah, the end. Yeah. I don't understand what's happening. I don't know. Um, I was gonna say, Ursula I think Ursula is killed, uh, Triton returns. <laughs> somehow, Triton has returned. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think Ursula just lost all her powers once the eels got, got zapped, you know, got killed. So, uh, I think that's all the ultimate explanation. I mean, I'm kidding, obviously, but I will say when, when she accidentally hits the eels and kills the eels instead, I laughed. That was funny. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was quite funny. Um, there was a, there was a, myself, the, the theater was full, but I was sitting next to, to a woman who also had come by herself to see this movie. And we were, we were laughing. We were laughing over, yeah. over some of the film that other people weren't laughing. She, she knew, at. she knew I was up to. We were, we were both in on the jokes, I think it's fair to say. So, you know, I wasn't, I, I had, I had this woman on one side and then the other side of me was this guy who was just playing with the zipper on his jacket the whole time. <laughs> which was just like incredible i was like my guy what are you doing <laughs> the fact that he thought that was more entertaining than the movie says a lot probably yeah it, it didn't make me wonder if he was actually watching the movie at times um i mean i get like mindless fiddling i do it too but i was just like bro what are you doing man <laughs> sit on your hands what are you doing yeah um anyway i guess should we talk should we have a little bit more concentrated conversations let's talk about the music let's talk about the music in this you talked about earlier on like the classic songs which I believe were originally written by uh, Howard Ashman. Oh, nope. Okay. Oh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they are, aren't they out? Maybe he just does the music. Uh, yeah. Maybe he's not actually the songwriter. Yeah. That's probably Alan Menken. Is that who you said? Yeah. 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 He, I think he's, he's the music. I'm not sure if you, I don't think he was, he wrote the songs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I thought you were saying something else. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I, I was saying that there's the classic songs that were written by Howard Ashman. Len Manuel Miranda is brought in to, to add some fresh takes on those songs. To, I think add some extra reprises and elements to make it more modern. 
but also to write some of his own songs. We mentioned one earlier for the first time. We made some jokes about Scuttlebutt already, which is which is one of his songs. Uh, Wild Uncharted Waters, which was a song performed by Prince Eric, is, is one that I believe Lin-Manuel Miranda added as well. And then he pumped up Kiss the Girl. Like He made Kiss the Girl more modern, I believe. Um, definitely a different take on that song. So, Scott, what did you think of overall the Little Mermaid 2023 soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, the Little Mermaid has some good songs. Like, it's not to me in the top echelon of Disney animated movies as far as the music is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think you have three songs there with Part of Your World, Under the Sea, and Kiss the Girl, um, which mm-hmm. are, you know, more or less classics in like the Disney animated music canon. Sure. Um, I mean, definitely under the certainly under the sea. Under the sea was an Academy yeah. Award winning song. So, um, yeah. but um, you know, I don't think that any of Lin Manuel Miranda's new songs are going to achieve that same status. I hate to say, you know, I do think he's obviously talented, but um, it feels like they maybe are are overusing him at this point. It's like, oh, you know, what can we do that people will enjoy? Oh, everyone loves Lin Manuel Miranda, right? I think he's he's starting to wear out his welcome a little bit. Um, with maybe his particular um, style of songwriting. Um, to be fair, I think his style of songwriting is really only immensely apparent in in one song. He has a particular verve, but yes, like this, his style that gets like, oh, that's that is like Lin Manuel Miranda crap is like Scuttlebutt for sure. Yeah, the but rap. that was so. That song was just so unnecessary, and I understand Aquafina. It like is a rapper like she kind of yeah and david diggs is his boy right like obviously like he yeah and, and david diggs is a very accomplished rapper with his group yeah. clipping but yeah so that song is really irritating scott and aquafina like just does not um does not make it better um it, it's safe to say like her voice in this song is like nails on a chalkboard at times um mm-hmm. it, it's pretty brutal but um so that was unnecessary you know i guess they thought oh this will be a fun little rap interlude or whatever but it really sort of derails the movie at that point i think it's so Um, it's so funny because and i texted you this after i saw the movie is they sort of like have her do her shtick like very briefly in the new version of kiss the girl and i thought that they were literally making a joke about how aquafina does this and it's like it is like not good and then they actually do the whole thing like 10 minutes later and I'm like, oh, no, they're like not making a joke about it. Like they're they're trying to tear up for this. And I was yeah. just like, what a what a what a miscalculation. <laughs> what a decision. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so as those are the new songs as for the well, I, I also want to say the song that Prince Eric has, man, Wild Jonah Uncharted Howard Waters. King, yeah, Jonah Howard King is giving it. 150 yeah. percent in that scene like i wanted to laugh a little man. bit because like i was like yeah. bro i mean again I'm, I'm happy that people are trying but it's not that serious um you know you can take it down just like a little bit um with well, well you, you joke about that but then like you know 15 20 minutes before that when hallie bailey is doing part like the part of your world reprise or whatever when she's like above water and she's like on the rock and they do the iconic image like that is that is at 152 like they are and they are like juicing that so hard yeah. when they have like the waves splash around her and it's like the sun in the background and she's like in the full mermaid pose i was like oh god like what have we done yeah it's a lot it's like, just um, the, the, it's just like the vibe is- the film like went for for like half an hour yeah. in the film 
the first song is okay. The for, for the first time is fine. Um, that one I didn't have a huge problem with. But as for the classic songs, Scott, again, they all sound good. Um, I think it probably is obviously worth talking about. Kiss the girl and the changes mm-hmm. that were made there because it was the you know it was some of the discourse going into the movie. Um, it's just very bizarre to me, Scott. There's really not a whole lot changed about the song, um, mm-hmm. but the the general idea that gets changed is. Um, of course, you know, as we know, um, Ariel has made the, the deal with Ursula, basically. She loses her voice. She has three days to kiss, um, kiss a human, and she will get her, her human power. She will be a human, which is what she wants. And um, so this song, Kiss the Girl, is Sebastian and Scuttle trying to encourage um, encourage Eric to to kiss Ariel so that everything will be good before the three days are up, right? Before the the time has elapsed. And I guess there were some people who were taking an extremely bad faith and, you know, reading that does not take into account any of the context of what's going on around the song and saying that the song maybe uh, doesn't teach good lessons about consent, right? And particularly, there's like one or two lines that seem to suggest if Eric wants to kiss Ariel, he should just do it right. And he should not, you know, check to make sure she's okay with this. Um, again, this is the most extreme reading, I think, of, of those particular lyrics. Um, those have now been changed, again, to sort of imply that Eric, you know, if you feel that she's okay with it, if you think she's, you know, if you think everything's good here, you know, and she's agreeing to this, then you should go ahead and kiss the girl. And the, the, the bizarre part of it, Scott, is that they've changed an entire plot element in order to even make this possible. Because, of course, your first thought is, of course, Ariel wants to kiss him, right? Like, that is the whole point of the plot, is that she has to kiss him so that she can become a human, right? Like, there there's really no concerns about consent or anything here. Uh, you know, uh, maybe the fact that she can't speak. But again, we're good. Like, she wants to do it. Um and, but so in this version, they have decided that it simply it seems in order so that they could teach this lesson. Um, they're going to add this extra detail, which is that Ursula's spell has caused Ariel to forget that she wants to kiss Eric. Um, well, this is an intentional thing. The The plot plays it off as Ursula is doing this so that she's like she's like loading the deal in her favor. Yeah. Yeah. She's stacking she'll, the deck. Yeah. But again, the only real purpose in doing this is right so that there there at this point needs to be apparently this lesson about consent because Ariel doesn't realize that she wants slash needs to kiss Eric. And so therefore he has to read the situation, make sure everything is good here and be, you know, proper about all of this. Um, it's just strange, Scott. Um, it doesn't bother me that much. It's just like, you know, the movie is, having to create the problem, right? Like to, in order to solve it, which seems to suggest that there wasn't a problem in the first place, right? Like, I don't know who was complaining about this song originally. I'm sure there were some, there was some subset of people out there, but at the end of the day, I don't really think it makes any sense to a positive message though it may be to go out of your way to create this whole new plot element, um, simply so that you can throw this lesson in here that some people may not even pick up on because it's a very sort of subtle change from a couple lines of 
the original song. Um, so just just strange. Again, it's it's one of those things that like Disney's making an effort, I guess, to modernize certain aspects of these classic stories. But I don't think they're picking the right aspects. I mean, yes, making Ariel, you know, African-American is a good choice. Um, that is one way you can modernize it more. And that makes sense. And that is positive. This just feels very forced. Yeah, I mean, forced though it may be, it didn't. It didn't really bother me. I noticed it insofar as like I thought it was like kind of goofy, if that makes sense. Like not not in like yeah. a bad way. Like not in a way that's just like oh look at these losers asking for consent. It was more just like it. I mean, most of the song is so goofy. Like, honestly, like most of most of the way they play off the whole song is like pretty goofy. Like Sebastian, like under his hat on the boat, like creeping out, like major creep vibes coming coming from the from the crowd here. So it's like kind of it's goofy in that sense. And then he's just he's being and then adding in the element of like, oh, you should make sure she's okay with it again. I think it is a great lesson. And I think normalizing that sort of thought process and in children or teens or whoever is watching this film, I think that's a good thing. I do see where you're coming from is that it feels like kind of like ironically contrived. I think that read is like overly cynical. Maybe I, I'm not like, do I we really think they changed so many parts of the movie just to make that point? I don't know if I totally but, agree with that. No, no, I'm not saying like, yeah, again, it's, it's just the idea that they are kind of inventing the problem, right? Because the, they're almost acknowledging that there's no problem with Ariel's consent in the original movie. And that in order to, you know, is, to is have that what they're doing? Message. I don't know if I agree with that. But why, why, I mean, why else add in the thing about her forgetting that she has, she needs to kiss Eric to, to me, that is them adding in. To to say, I think okay. it's, 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 it's to show like how manipulative and evil Ursula is like even above and beyond. Sure. That, I'm, that, I'm saying, like, I think that your read is the is the ultra cynical one about it, and I think that there's, you know, it can be somewhere maybe. less cynical than that, probably. Yeah, you, may, you think maybe. that they really they really changed the one of the entire like key plot details so that they could they could say Eric asked for consent in their "Kiss the Girl" song? Like, you really believe that? Yes. <laughs> but like, but like, why? Why would they do that? Like, just like, why would they do that? Because again, there I guess there are the answer is I don't know why, but to me it's it it you know that's the way that it comes off as, and the the point I guess is to again add modern elements in there to try and address things that I guess there were some people out there saying that the old movie had a problem with this. I don't personally think it was a problem, but you know the old movie isn't as familiar to me maybe as it is to some people. Um, I mean, they did they did this right with um, Aladdin as well, right? They gave Jasmine like this whole new song to sing. They felt like you know maybe she wasn't didn't have enough agency in the original Aladdin. They did that, um, but that's not changing sure fundamental find... plot details of the film. Well, I, and I don't necessarily think this is changing a fundamental plot detail, but it is changing okay, a, a plot, plot detail. detail. Sure, a it is changing detail. a plot detail. Well, it's and, a plot detail that yes. determines entirely how, like, the second half of the film develops in terms of, like, whether Ariel is able to complete her side of the deal. And, and yes, I think that you can also pass it off as, um, oh, this is just character detail. 
for Ursula, right? This is just further building out her character because there are other other times when they're trying to do this too. Um, mm-hmm. They're giving her some new backstory elements too. Sure, that's fine. I'm not going to judge anyone for the reading of that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a fair reading of it. I also think, look, the the song, to me, the consent thing, doesn't make sense with the characters as they are originally written, How, why there would necessarily be any concern about this, except for maybe the fact that she can't speak, right? But that's not really the part of it that they're addressing. Um, instead, they have decided to um, create a problem, right? Which is that now Ariel doesn't know that she wants or needs to kiss Eric, and therefore there needs to be consent and therefore eric needs to ask yeah i think that's just like i think that's maybe a in my like i guess i just i read the consent thing a little bit differently because consent is not like whether both parties want it it's like making sure you're communicating to the other person that you do want it right and so i i think that they're like in my mind it actually would have been totally fine if they left the original plot details as is because because ariel can't communicate right to Eric without her voice. Verbally, um, at least. Yeah. Verbally, yeah, verbally. Of course, there's other ways to communicate, of course. Um, I think that there, like, there, there is a reasonable path there to just insert what you're like what the film does here to like make sure she, you know, she is some, this is something that she wants. I think that there's a there's a path to do that without changing fundamental plot details. Because yeah, because it's not about whether she knows she wants it, it's about whether she's communicating that she wants it. So I, I think that there is a path there without changing the fundamental plot details in my mind. Look, does it, does it make it more, I don't know, easy or obvious tweaking this detail? Like, like maybe I just, I just think it's, it's forced, there was a, there is a path there without it in my mind. I don't, that they didn't need to contrive circumstance, like worse, worse circumstances in air quotes for something like this to be discussed again. We probably already spent more time on it than, than it warranted, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I think I just, I think I maybe just read the consent element of the of of what they're trying to do a little bit differently, which makes me, I mean, maybe my read is just a more generous one. I don't know, but I, I just think that it's not. If that's all they wanted, I don't think that they needed to add this extra bit. They could have just gone ahead and made the changes they they made to kiss the girl without creating. I don't know, more, more hype, hyperbolic's not the right word, but more, more contrived circumstances. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I think, I think the real answer is probably somewhere in the middle of our positions. I don't know, but um, yeah, but yes. Yeah. So we've talked, I mean, we are 45 minutes into recording. The other songs. Good though. I mean, you know, part of your world under the sea, those songs still sure. hit. They're still, still great. Disney okay. Songs. I did want to talk about under the sea because I feel like people were, uh, were, were, there's a lot. There's a lot of funny stuff about this song out there on the internet, is what I'll say. Did you see Scott? Did you see like the behind the scenes type footage where how they how they did the that like Ursula or not yeah. Ursula, um, Ariel sitting like sitting and being transported by the turtles during that song? It's like she's sitting on like actual people wearing like blue suits, like green screen suits, <laughs> and like just like hopping around in some like oh, green no. screen room on the soundstage. It's so funny. It's so That's funny. Bad. And then David Sims was like tweeting about like they didn't even have a hot crustacean band or whatever. Yeah, they like, didn't. That yeah. is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I'm like, well, they got him there. Um, very, very funny stuff. I mean, Under the Sea is like an all time elite banger. I don't know if if 
I guess I I, I was uh, not underwhelmed, but kind of like when I when I was watching The Lion King, and they they did I just can't wait to be king, which is probably one of my one of if not my favorite songs from The Lion King. I just kind of felt underwhelmed by the whole production of it a little bit, and not because they did because, anything wrong, just because it's like such a great song. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just like we don't need it, right? Like the songs are. It feels like you're just watching a very good cover of under the sea like uh-huh yeah i mean that yeah, doesn't yeah, that doesn't really change anything but is like you know energetically performed and obviously performed by people who have a lot of talent yeah i mean but also just, just like, like a super chaotic scene in the film like i don't even know yeah. what's happening half the time in the, <laughs> on the screen which is like fine whatever i don't care but yeah under the sea is a great song and always will be i i enjoyed the music overall um I mean, Scuttlebutt is just an atrocity. I mean, it really is. I could not believe what I was. Aquafina is like honking at points in this song with her yeah. voice. Like, I, there's no other way to describe the sound of people how it vacated sounds, the like... kitchen to let her cook, and it was it was a, it was a mess in the kitchen. Yeah, I was gonna say just to talk about her a little bit more for a second because you yeah. know there is discourse surrounding. I mean, look, I'm not gonna be one of these people who's like I was never in on Aquafina, right? Like, sure. I thought she was funny i mean when she came out with like crazy rich asians i thought she's really funny in that um you know obviously the farewell right was a performance that you know i mean a, if a complete it had been departure nominated, from her character yeah if yeah. it had been nominated for an oscar it, it would have been deserving of it right um but now since that movie i don't know if it was not getting nominated for an oscar or what it was but she's just decided to lean very heavily into um you know more of the crazy rich asian style comic relief role yeah. right like we saw you know shang chi obviously she she showed up she has a little bit more to do in that movie but still i think she it's fair to say that that's in the same style of you know the other comedic roles that she's done yeah she's i mean done they definitely other... want her to be comedic in that film yeah she's done some other voice stuff um you know most recently we saw her in renfield which i didn't think she was like terrible in that but um you know, again, not just, a dramatic film, though. No, not not the types of roles which I think she can succeed in um, and which she showed that she could succeed in with um, with the farewell. It just seems now she's she's like in all the big budget like stuff and she's doing the same sort of thing. And it is it has reached its its expiration date with this movie to me. Like I I want to see her do something differently in the future or yeah. I'm going to start really turning against her finding her very annoying which is a so, shame because i don't think she's like has no talent like she has proven that she does yeah so i'm i'm curious there to to put my generous read hat on again do we think that it's her not being interested in doing things like the farewell or do you think it's her not having the opportunity to perform roles that are more dramatic in nature because the farewell wasn't ultimately uh, a money-making endeavor or an awards-generating endeavor. And so she's not receiving offers because she's an Asian woman yeah. known for her comedy and her her comedic personality, we'll say. And if she wants to make money in the industry, I'm sure she could, she could obviously go and make small things and not make money like and make very little money doing more dramatic roles like 100% but if she wants to get paid then she has to sort of cave to the desire of studios to typecast her 
into certain roles. I don't know the answer to this question. It's just I'm I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's it's the eternal debate, right? Like many, many other performers of color, I'm sure, have had this exact same predicament that they've found themselves in over the years. So mm-hmm. I don't want to speculate as to necessarily as to what her reasons are or if she, you know, has a, a choice in the matter, really. Like, does she have to do these types of movies in order to sustain herself as an actress? Maybe that is the case. Um, I guess all I would say is, obviously, that's disappointing. Not she is not disappointing necessarily. If if you know, again, if it is truly that she doesn't have a choice in the matter, um, but it is just disappointing to see so many talented people squandered in these sorts of projects over and over again, right? Because this is again, this is not the first time that this has happened to her and. There's other examples of, you know, again, somebody else we like, like Brian Tyree Henry, right? Another actor of color, like he's had to do the Eternals. He's done Joker for one scene. Like he came out really strong out the gate with, you know, some performances in smaller films like Widows, sure. like if Bill Street could talk. I mean, that's um, almost one scene, though. I mean, that that is so few scenes as well. He's like, sure, sure. But anyway, yeah. I mean, he he you know, it's a, it's a Barry Jenkins film, right? Like this is a sure. movie by a big prestige director or what once was a big prestige director, but, um, and get your knife. Get... Scott's coming no, with his I'm knife just... today. <laughs> I kid, I kid, but, um, but, but yeah, it, it's a trend for sure. And I think maybe the truth is probably closer to the, the idea that you're proposing there. And that's a shame that we, you know, still haven't come far enough to where, um, actor, these actors don't have to worry about something like that. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I, I, yeah, Barry Jenkins, you know, I don't know if it's like a big prestige director's right word, but like, because uh, at that time he's a, like, yes, he'd made Moonlight, but he was ultimately like a small black focused director. And obviously Brian Tyree, like that kind of story, obviously it would make sense that Brian Tyree Henry would gravitate towards, et cetera, do something more dramatic and satisfying overall. Yeah, I, I have you ever watched Nora from Queens? No. No, yeah, me either. I'm curious if that's more dramatically interesting. I know it's a comedy. I know it's still like a comedy show, like mm-hmm. a comedy TV series. But it, I, I picture in my mind something that's like more of a crossover between drama and comedy. And I wonder if she, if she does that. I haven't seen it either. But anyway, Scott, we some. I mean, we've talked for a long time on this podcast already, frankly, and I don't even think we've talked about it very much. Uh, but I don't know. It's been an interesting conversation. I do want to talk about two more things before we wrap up, because we haven't really talked about the cast very much, which seems kind of crazy. I mean, obviously, we talked about Aquafina a lot just now, but we we both had praise for the cast when we were talk- giving our general thoughts. And so it feels like we should at least talk about maybe the the winners, um, if we had to select a winner or two out of this cast. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's, I think that we, at least I would say, and I thought we were on the same page when we were texting about this movie the other night, that it seems like Halle Bailey and Melissa McCarthy are probably the big winners uh, from the cast on this. So would you like to share any more thoughts on their performances? Sure. Just quickly, because we've, you know, yeah. talked a lot here, but um, yeah, I mean, they both are, are super committed. I mean, I really liked Melissa McCarthy, you know, she leaned heavily into the, the villain role and really sort of seemed to have a good time with the, the dastardly, you yeah. know, she chewed the Ursula. seaweed for sure. She did. Yeah. yeah. Um, Again, I don't know that it's the greatest character or Disney villain or anything like that still, but I think she made the most of her screen time. And Halle Bailey, yeah, I mean, you know, she's obviously known for being a musician, right? Like that was 
how she got this role primarily. But I think her acting is very good too. I think she knows she really portrays all of the, you know, the playfulness of this character, but also sort of the longing and desperation that she eventually has when, you know, time is running out for her. And um, obviously she has this dream and she feels like the, the world and environment that she's in is, is suffocating her and preventing her from, from realizing that dream. And I thought she was able to portray all of those emotions very well, especially for somebody who has not really acted before. So um, don't have any problem with, with her in this movie. I think, you know, probably the, the strongest part of the movie, strongest addition, certainly strongest thing that is different from, you know, the original Little Mermaid. Yeah, I, I think that Melissa McCarthy, I think even at the time, maybe I don't think I'm doing revisionist history on this, but I think when we saw Melissa McCarthy cast in this role, I think we talked back in like 2018, 2019 about how like that was like probably a good casting. Like it, that like seemed to make sense. She yeah. can be a serious actress. Like we, we know that we've seen her do it. And to allow her be kind of this darker, serious, but like in the seriousness being comedic almost. Uh, I think that sort of really worked for her. And I really enjoyed her turn as Ursula. Halle Bailey is one of those, like, obviously she massively benefits from having, from like, like from the fact that half of her role, if not more, is singing. And she's clearly a star at that, like 100%. And she, oh, yeah. has, a, she has a presence in the musical aspect of the film that just like, absolutely delivers. And she's not a disappointment whatsoever. Like the choice to cast her as uh, this this role as someone who can sing first was like clearly uh, something they stuck to and that they should be applauded for because it paid off big yeah, time in the film. The right decision. Yeah, it's always the right decision in musicals. Yeah, absolutely. Do do I think that this proves her as an actress, uh, like her capabilities? I'm not sure. Yeah, like I'm not sure. But I think the good news is is that like she was certainly competent enough to warrant other films if she's interested in sniffing around her being in the film, in which case she has the chance to show whether she wants to be a quote unquote serious actress, or if she wants to stick to singing and songwriting, which if she does, that makes a lot of sense because she's really good at it. Yeah. Not that nonverbal acting isn't obviously hard to do as well, but I would have to think like, this is a nice starter role for her, right? Where she doesn't even have to say anything really for half the movie. Sure. And, and I was going to say that, I, my hesitation comes from the fact that like I wasn't totally convinced in those scenes where yeah, yeah. she was forced to, you know, act. Um, I don't think she was bad. I just like I wasn't convinced. But I mean, the singing is I mean, she's there like it's it's a pretty explosive performance in terms of the musical element of it. And then, yeah, David Diggs, innocent. Jacob Tremblay, man, man, what are you doing? This <laughs> flounder. Oh, my God, my guy. What did they pay you for this? Uh, <laughs> Again, it's like, oh, who can we cast who's like a kid, you know, who's who's a kid, act, you know, known yeah. kid actor like that. That doesn't feel like they really put any sort of thought into the casting about like, oh, how about the kid from room? You know, like, well, they could have done. Like that's how the, the casting meeting went. Yeah, I mean, maybe they could have done. Was it is it Noah Jupe? What's the kid's name? Yeah. From Honey Boy. From Honey Boy. Yeah. But I guess maybe he's even a little bit older. So I don't know. I mean, like, if this movie was made five years ago, it would have been like Finn Wolfhard, right? So, oh, so I don't want to think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, 
I don't know. Have I forgotten anyone? I mean, Javier Bardem. I think if I had to point to one person who just like, well, that wasn't it, brother. It was Javier Bardem in this movie. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what was going on there. He was Taking he was like so yeah. cooked up in this film. Like he was at a very serious monotone eleven. Yeah, with no emotion. I, again, I I mentioned to you. I think one of the unintentionally funniest parts of the movie is this is where I wanted to he, end. This is what I wanted to end on. Yeah. Is the is the finale he comes of the out film. of the water. Unbelievable. They're they're sailing away. He comes out of the water and uh, just very like abruptly and almost creepily first when you first see him and then like deadpan he looks too. at yeah. yeah he looks at ariel and like my you know beloved daughter or whatever blah blah blah. and then he just sees eric sitting there and he's like eric <laughs> <laughs> and like it it would be a funny moment except it's not supposed to be like you can tell that he's yes. they're not intending it to be a funny moment like it is just top your bird is just so serious it's supposed to be this like serious emotional catharsis but yeah like, it's like father a and daughter moment. and then and, all the and sisters they're just hamming it up water. it's like the freaking end of titanic when all the sisters are like coming out of the water and yeah. it's just wild i mean when that it was it was crazy enough when triton comes out of the water like you described and then when the camera like pans or like cuts and shows like the water behind them and he's all his sisters and he's like just random mer people out of the water sitting on ships and just like bro what the fuck is happening <laughs> what is happening crazy stuff um, it, it was tough it was yeah tough. i mean again me and the woman next to me we were we were we were howling at this point i think it was just un unbelievable anyway scott i think we should really probably cut it cut ourselves off here what, what was your favorite scene or moment from The Little Mermaid, 2023? I'm struggling here. No, I guess it's probably the part of your world uh, scene. You know, I think that's personally the best song out of The Little Mermaid. Sure. And, um, you know, it's a great, uh, there's like a, a word for it in like musical theater, but great, great song that like sums up the character's desires and wants and everything. Mm -hmm. um, like you have these kinds of songs in every musical. Um but it's a, it's a, it's a great way to establish character through a song, just the way that it's written. And then Halle Bailey, yeah, as you mentioned, like her performance, her musical talent is is very apparent. So um, it's it's definitely a spellbinding scene to watch with her in that role. So I'd point to that one. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, for me, it's I am torn because I feel like there's no one scene that just like perfectly captures the best parts of the film. And I think that there are genuinely good parts of the movie, but I did really like the sort of like exploration of the island. I want to pick something new because, I mean, one of the things that I'm going to take away from this is not like how they remade stuff that already existed, but it is the new stuff they added. And although it doesn't provide any, I think that they sort of erred in some ways providing extra color and detail for some of the characters. Again, as I described earlier, because they didn't really pay off a lot of that detail later on in the film. But one element that they did add in the middle, which is, also part of a new song that you briefly had alluded to earlier, which is um, for the first time that song, I really enjoyed them exploring the Island kingdom that, you know, Eric and his mother rule over and the whole notion of like hanging out with the Island locals and dancing and singing like that was sort of like, I think that captured a lot more of the joy um, and sort of like hangout vibes that wasn't necessary to add in the film. No, but this edition didn't it didn't feel like there was any stakes attached to anything happening and overall you sort of like understand maybe the confusion that 
Eric is feeling not recognizing Ariel as the person who saved him, but also being this person who he connects with at a, you know, a really core level. So I, I enjoyed that scene overall. And um, I thought it was a, a, of the new songs, especially, I think that was the, probably the best edition. Yeah, I agree. That is definitely the best one. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving the little mermaid? Uh, I'm going to give it a 4.1. Uh, it's just, Pretty, pretty lazy, pretty unnecessary, pretty perfunctory. I mean, I'm, I'm happy about the representation stuff that they were able to achieve here. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, this film doesn't need to exist. Sure. Uh, 5.8 for me. I'm obviously much more positive. I think there's just some, some really silly, crazy stuff in there. But I will say, and this is not something that I think that we talked about very much, is that I did find like a large chunk of the film like at least enjoyable to watch. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't a miserable experience watching them. I didn't feel the running time, like, too, too much. Yeah, neither did I. Yeah. Um, Like The Lion King, like we talked about at the beginning, I did walk out being like, I don't know how that was 52 minutes longer. Like, I definitely Mm -hmm. noticed parts that that had been drawn out and had been added. But I I still don't understand. How is that movie an hour longer than the animated film? Um, better than like at least more understandable than Lion King, where I literally could not tell you where thirty minutes were added in the movie. Maybe the credits are thirty minutes long, Scott. I don't even know. Um, but look, it's it is what it is here. But I think the Little Mermaid is as as trite as I was up front in my intro. Um, definitely nowhere near the most offensive of the live action remakes to me. So there you have it. Yeah, definitely not. That's still. Dumbo and the Lion King for different reasons, but I think sure. those are the worst ones in my opinion. So it'd be funny because we were talking. I mean, Mulan. I think Mulan's up there too, but um, Mulan's bad. I, if we took Scuttle and Flounder away, <laughs> would we be having a Mulan conversation? Like, if we just like, okay, we got to wipe these guys out because we, for whatever reason, we have a Flounder who looks like he's on Ozempic and a dove who's or like a seagull who's on cocaine. So, like, what What if we just had David Diggs cooking as Sebastian? Um, what do you think, Scott? What's your take on that? Would we be having, like, a Mushu-Mulan conversation? No, I don't think those characters would have been missed as much as Mushu. Because you also have, like, the iconic voice performance of Eddie Murphy and sure. um, Mulan to go with that. I mean, it would have made the movie better, actually, in my opinion, but only by a small margin. Like, it, it yeah. wouldn't have, you know, justified the movie again. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. All right, that should do it for our discussion of The Little Mermaid. We've, we've talked enough about this. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be discussing all the happenings from The Croissette at this year's Cannes Film Festival these past few weeks. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As mentioned before the break, we are talking all about the Cannes Film Festival, at least this year's version. Scott, I will hand things over to you to walk us through both the big award winners in competition from the past few weeks at Cannes, but also some of the big debuts that maybe were not in competition that are worth uh, keeping an eye on as we enter the fall festival season. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned there, uh, you know, there, of course, are the awards to talk about with the Cannes Film Festival, but perhaps what people might be even more interested in 
um, are some of the films that premiered out of competition. So they were not in, in competition for the awards. They just simply had their premieres there. Um, and, uh, you know, of those films, I think there are probably maybe three of note. Um, two of them are from Disney, who we've spent the, this entire episode talking about. Um, one of them is their latest Pixar film, Elemental. And the other one is Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, um, the fifth Indiana Jones film. Both of these are slated to come out this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and Disney made the decision to debut them at Cannes, which has been criticized by a lot of people. Uh, mainly because, you know, the the demographic at Cannes is definitely more, you know, art house and prestige films. And, and the people who are there are, you know, critics for more, um, I guess, serious publications. Um, and so um, not necessarily the, the type of crowd that you would um, want to debut these new Disney films for when what you are looking for is, you know, the most glowing positive buzz, right? Like it's not like these the MCU films that always have these screenings and you have like the paid shills who are just, you know, going off about how it's, there's not a bunch of influencers. What you're saying is there's there's not like a bunch of like social media influencers there. It's mostly, you know, reviewers for trade publications or magazines, things like that. It's not people who are doing five, like, 140 character reviews on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Correct. Um, And unfortunately, Scott, it seems like the decision did not really pay off for them uh, because both of these films, Elemental and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, have received very mixed reviews out of Cannes. Um, You know, in the case of Elemental, maybe slightly more positive than the Indiana Jones reviews, but definitely like very middle of the road. And, you know, Scott Pixar, we've talked a lot about them. I know you're an even bigger fan than I am, um, but I think maybe we both felt that creatively they um, have had some issues recently. You know, Lightyear was definitely a big bummer last year. They've still made good films in recent years, but um, I'm on record as saying I thought Elemental looked shaky. Um, You know, it has some ideas, I think, that have already been done. Um, the, The idea of, like, animating the elements reminds me of inside out and doing the same thing with the emotions. Um, and then just, just the idea of the, the elements interacting together in in this world that they've created, you know, obviously most famously was done in like avatar, the last airbender. Um, but also even more recently than that in a Disney animation film in Raya and the last dragon had a very similar um, sort of setup to that. So I was very skeptical about this, and certainly the reviews have have confirmed some of my skepticism. Um, but at the same time, again, I think we do have to take with a grain of salt the the demographic that is at Can. With that being said, uh, you know, I think the demographic that is at Can is probably more often who I find myself agreeing with about a lot of movies. So, okay, um, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny again, also obviously big, huge tentpole release for the summer. Harrison Ford's send-off as Indiana Jones. We have James Mangold directing the first person to direct an Indiana Jones film that is not Steven Spielberg. And, um, you know, again, the reviews seem to suggest that it should have been Steven Spielberg. It would have been better if it was Steven Spielberg. Um, and that the spark is really just not there in the film that that Mangold has made. Again, grain of salt, whatnot. 
I am still hoping that I will enjoy the film. I am still trying to go in with an optimistic lens on it because I do think James Mangold is a good director. Um, and obviously Harrison Ford, one of the greatest movie stars ever. Um, but certainly some excitement has probably been tempered by the reviews here. Has your excitement been tempered at all, Scott? My my excitement has been tempered a little bit, but like, I mean, I, I guess it wouldn't surprise me at this point if I do agree with the critics out of can on this one. At the same time, I rewatched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull recently. It's not as bad as as people say it is. It's like really not as bad as as people say it is. At least at least in terms of what I remember people talking about it or or how fashionable it is. Maybe to say that like oh that's just so awful. So again, I'm not. I'm. It's one of those where like I might. I'm just gonna I'm gonna trust that James Mangold has not made a terrible film because the reviews like I think you've undersold that the reviews are mixed about this movie like the, the reviews I think out of can for indie are pretty bad frankly yeah. so I'm just I'm just like really surprised that James Mangold would oversee a pretty bad Indiana Jones movie like that I just find that so surprising that I feel like I have to see it for myself before I truly believe that but is my excitement tempered? Yeah, I'm a little bit more wary of the film now. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I was just going based off of like the Rotten Tomatoes score and stuff like that. But obviously, we've talked about Rotten Tomatoes has a lot of issues. So, um, sure. based on that, it would be considered mixed. But yes, I think it's fair to say that um, that on the whole, it is negative. Um, yeah, I feel like I was seeing a lot more... of like two star reviews of the film going up is i felt like is what i was seeing but maybe i'm wrong about that yeah on a more positive note scott killers of the flower moon that's martin scorsese's um new film that we've been talking about for years now um yeah. it's finally going to be coming out in the fall on apple tv and in theaters um and it had its premiere at Cannes, and perhaps not surprisingly received very strong reviews um talking about playing to your audience yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, the opposite probably of what we're talking about with Disney. Um, definitely, this yeah. is the audience for a Scorsese film, and it went over well. Um, I'm, I was seeing a lot of four and a half and even five star reviews for Killers of the Flower Moon. So, um, not that I don't think anything really could have tempered my excitement for this. Um, and again, it, I think this is fully in line with what I expected. But um, it's still nice to see, of course, and nice to get that confirmation that, yeah, even at age 80, whatever, Martin Scorsese is still still cooking with gas and um, and that, you know, he's put together another masterpiece here um, in his late period. Another 300 minute masterpiece for us to consume. Not quite 300, but no, uh, I know. maybe not. hopefully next time we'll get to 300. But. Yeah, well, his second Jesus Christ movie, uh, maybe he'll he'll eclipse the 300 mark on that one i mean three is a pretty big number in in the bible so um yeah oh. maybe he'll he'll really go for it 333 minutes um do it you coward do it marty uh, yeah. i mean if anyone can do it he can i will say one thing but, i'm confused uh, about killers of the flower moon scott and i need i need some clarity is that i feel like uh, someone had told me that jesse plemons is the lead in this yes. movie but I feel like everyone talking no. about this movie has has informed me that Leonardo DiCaprio is in fact the lead of this movie. So I'm deeply confused about what is happening. I had the exact same thought, and actually, I don't. You probably haven't seen the trailer, but um, no, I don't. Watch yes, trailers, the, tra so. the trailer has given the strong impression that Leonardo DiCaprio will be the lead. I think Jesse Plemons only appears in the trailer a couple times, actually, like a couple. Maybe it's shots. like a first half, second half type thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's possible. I don't know if that was just bad intel from back in the day or, or what, but um, yeah. DiCaprio is going to have a substantial role, and it seems like we'll be campaigned as lead actor in this when it comes to award season. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was a little confused on that at first, too, but that would be my take. I think the more hype performance, perhaps, even though it's going to be Lily Gladstone, Lily Gladstone yeah. in the you know, probably best lead actress role. Again, I'm not sure what the size of the role is, but that doesn't um, matter what the size of the role is, Scott. They'll campaign her wherever they think that she yeah. has the best chance. So not that awards matter either. But um but yeah, she's getting a lot of praise, you know, again, unsurprising given um that she received a lot of praise for her debut in certain women several years ago. Um and hasn't really been in a whole lot since then. Um so this I mean this movie's been in big a big opportunity for her. obviously not in production for four to five years but i feel like we were talking about this film as soon yeah. as the irishman came out because it was originally going to be a paramount film and it still is it's still being distributed by paramount in theaters um obviously it's going it's apple finished funding the project and it is going onto their streaming service i'd imagine in pretty short order after the theatrical release that paramount puts together but yeah it's it's been around for a while we've been talking about this film for half a decade almost it feels like yeah, I'm I'm just ready to see it. Yeah, Leo's uh, back, by the way. We forget, don't look up. Movie didn't happen. Leo's back, finally. Yeah, I guess I said that about Lily Gladstone, but also I did see multiple people saying this is like a top performance of Leo's career. So, yeah, that's very exciting. Sure, take um, the awards, Leo. No problem with me. My, t- so you're saying my favorite actor is giving his best performance of his career? Sure, why not? Speaking of awards, Scott, turning to the actual awards from the film festival um, in the film from the films that were in competition. Um, I think perhaps the first thing to point out here is that the Grand Prix prize, which I believe is like sort of the second prize, uh, sort of the runner up, um, went to the film The Zone of Interest, uh, which is was one of the most praised, if not the most praised film coming out of Cannes. This is the latest film from Jonathan Glazer, um, his first film in 10 years since Under the Skin, which is a movie that I really enjoy, Scott. Um, he's only made about, I think this is only like his fourth movie, uh, fourth or fifth movie, but, um, you know, known auteur director, very acclaimed auteur director, obviously puts a lot of care into his movies. This is a holocaust drama about a i believe from what i understand it's about a family who ends up living sort of right next to a concentration camp um and the you know realities that they have to deal with from the the place where they are living um sounds like it's going to be a really tough watch scott but you know for whatever reason holocaust dramas nazi dramas stuff like that um often result in some of my favorite films um that that subject matter just you know hits hard for obvious reasons for me um and so mm-hmm. this could end up being one of my favorite films of the year it was it was not on my radar and that that is my fault because if i had known about it it would have been um it certainly is now in this film receiving the grand prix prize at the Cannes film festival and like i said was receiving a lot of four and a half and five star films and praise as well for sandra Hulaire, um who is the lead actress in the film who um maybe most famously was in the the german film tony erdman which i think i don't think it won the oscar but was nominated for the oscar and many people at the time were talking about that was just like an all-time performance that she gives in that movie so um 
another big opportunity for her too. Any thoughts on the zone of interest, Scott? Yeah, very interesting. I think that I'm curious how they will market this film. I mean, it's being distributed by A24, so I don't think they'll do anything weird with it. But I think if you're not familiar with what the material is, you might be surprised by the kind of film that it's about because it's not it's not some Schindler's List story or mm-hmm. some like heroic, you know, Holocaust saving or World War II esque story that you might think of. And the fact that it is much more um, pitched as what are the consequences um, from a different perspective, I think, which I, I think is ripe for a really, you know, interesting discussion, but I'm sure the discourse will be great. So looking forward to that. Yeah, of course it always is. Um, before we talk about the Palm Door, Scott, some other awards to, to talk about. Um, the Best Director Award went to a filmmaker I'm not familiar with, a Vietnamese filmmaker, Tran An Hung, for his film The Pot Al Feu. Um, he actually is somewhat prolific. He's made several films going back to the early 90s. Um, I, I believe I had heard of his film Norwegian Wood from a few, few years ago. It's another Murakami adaptation. Um, much like uh, Drive My Car was just a couple of years ago, but uh, at least in part. Um, but his film, The Pot Alfeo, as I said, stars Juliette Binoche, um, and he was awarded the, the Best Director um, best director Prize for that. I believe this one is an original film centered in the world of food. Again, um, The Pot Alfeo is, is a dish, from what I understand. Um, and so it's, it's going to be a romance film, and, and Juliette Binoche, again, the name to point out there from the cast... It's not going to be um, the tar of, of food, as opposed to music. What a shame. Perhaps I mean, I, look, I'm down for it. But I think um, it's a period piece. It's like set in the 1800s, so I don't think that it's going to be a tar. Too bad. Um, Scott, uh, elsewhere, the Best Actor Award went to Koji Yakusho for the film Perfect Days. Scott, this is a film that I'm very intrigued by because it is um, a film by the great director Vim Vendors, um, who's made one of most famous film, maybe his most famous film, one of his most famous films is one of my all-time favorite films, uh, Paris, Texas, um, starring Harry Dean Stanton, um, but also known for like Wings of Desire and and also known for his his documentary work. That was kind of how he, he made his name was on documentaries and even over the years has still continued to make documentaries. I think that the consensus is he's not really made a very accomplished um narrative feature in some time perhaps since until the end of the world which is back towards the the start of the 90s but this movie was receiving um positive reviews not quite as glowing as you know like uh, like a zone of interest or killers of the flower moon like we're talking about but a lot of people were saying you know that he's back whatever that means when vendors is back um but this is uh, a film about a janitor in japan um who the the description is just a janitor in japan drives between jobs listening to rock music um literally that is the plot description which i have for this film which you know vim vendors i think is known for more road style movies more of these sort of like you know again journeys um paris texas is certainly that style movie until the end of the world from what i know about it is also that type of a movie so um this doesn't sound you know unfamiliar to him um that it would be sort of this aimless sort of human um as well as physical journey i would imagine and um maybe a lot of emphasis on 
this one performance on Koji Yakusho. I mean, that that is one thing about Paris, Texas, is that I think it contains, you know, I think Harry Dean Stanton is giving one of the greatest performances of all time in that film. So um, I think he he knows what to do with actors as well and certainly had to draw very human performances out of them, which probably comes from his his work as a documentarian, too. Scott, best actress uh, went to Merv Dizdar for the film About Dry Grasses. Um, this is a film and a person that I was not super familiar with. Um, looks like it's a very long Turkish film, um, from what I can. Very long and, Turkish film. Brother, you just talked about uh, Pillars of the Flower Moon. Stand down with your with your film length commentary. No, I, I was not judging it for that. Um, okay, I'm just saying it's it. a very long Turkish film. It's three hours and 12 minutes, so it is up there with Killers of the Flower Moon length. Yeah. Um, but um, it sounds like it's about a teacher who um, is sent to a small village near Istanbul um, and a romance that develops there between him and, and someone else. I'm imagining Merv Dizdar, again, a Turkish actress, is playing. A student, the, to be clear, love, to someone else. A student. there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I didn't see that. But anyway, another film to to watch out for. Again, not anything I knew about or that has big names attached to it necessarily, but mm -hmm. um, certainly something to keep an eye on. Um, one other thing I want to point out, Scott, before we talk about the Palm Door, is that um, the screenplay category went to Sakamoto Yuji for Monster, which is uh, Hirokazu Koreeda's new film. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. You know, very uh, prominent Japanese director of the last... Um, 15 years or so last year made a broker a film that we both loved scott he's become sure. more prolific but you know films like shoplifters still walking after the storm um and his tv series which i very much enjoyed this year uh, the Mackinac on netflix so it's gonna um, be the first film that Coriata hasn't written that he's directing okay be crazy interesting but uh, yeah, he's he's pumping him out, and I'm I'm here for it because I think he's a director who very much makes films of the style and about the sort of things that I'm interested in. So um, this is his latest, and you know he didn't write it, but it sounds like the screenplay is very good because it did take home the the screenplay prize here. Sorry, since since 1995, so it's been like gotcha. almost 30 years since he directed the film. No, he didn't write. Finally, Scott, the film that won the Palme d'Or, uh, the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival, um, is the fourth straight film uh, to yeah. win from Neon Studios. Um, it is the film Anatomy of a Fall uh, from the director Justine Triette, um, the French director um, known for guess, her, her, <laughs> her recent film, Sybil, was a was a film that I was at least familiar with uh, out of her work. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess another French female director winning uh, Julia de Cournau, of course, won a couple of years ago for Titan. Um, the other films from Neon that won the, the Palme d'Or recently last year was Triangle of Sadness, Ruben Islin's film. And then um, back in 2019, of course, Parasite um, was the winner of the Palme d'Or. So four straight wins for Neon, you know, Neon, I think, is is for for whatever we want to talk about, like studio indie studios becoming brands or whatever. I know some people have an issue with this with Neon and A twenty four, but all I really care about is the quality of the films. And both of these studios are continuing to put out amazing films. I mean, um, Neon just released that How to Blow Up a Pipeline was Neon, right? Yeah, and that mm -hmm. is our that's my favorite film of the year still so far. It might be yours, Scott. I don't know, but um, 
but um, they've been cooking with gas. Um, and I am. It, it know, should be I'm said that Neon is acquiring these films after they've been made for the most yes. part and not yeah. and not necessarily like unlike a 24, not actually producing movies. Not developing um, them, yeah. So it's it, I. Yes. But also they have they clearly are identifying good movies to distribute. Um, which is and international films too, which you know I'm very much about. So, yep. um, international and and you know again domestic films like something like How to Build Up a Pipeline, but then you also have like the worst person in the world. And yeah, um, I mean one of, one of their first so. movies that I think Neon distributed was, I think one of their first was I Tanya. I yeah. think they also had a few others that that year earlier in 2017. But oh my gosh, the, the Bad Batch was the third movie they ever released. It was. Yeah, that was a neon film. But yeah. anyway, Scott, Anatomy of a Fall, again, not a movie that was on my radar until this, but it sounds really interesting. It's uh, sure. about a woman who is suspected of her husband's murder and their blind son um, is the sole witness of the. You know what? I think I screwed up actually earlier when I was talking about. No, she is in Zone of Interest as well. OK, I was going to say, did I mix <laughs> up the films that Sandra Hilaire was in? But no, she's in both of these films. Wow. Amazing moment for her. But yeah. um, yes, Sandra Hilaire is starring in this film uh, as well as Zone of Interest. Um, she is playing the woman who is suspected of her husband's murder. Maybe a bit of a disappointment for her now that she didn't take home Best Actress, despite being in like two of the most praised film of the films of the festival. But uh, I'm sure. sure she'll get her flowers when both of these films see a, a wider audience. But yeah, sounds like more of like a thriller, maybe like a procedural, maybe even some courtroom action going on here, Scott. Well, it's definitely Again, described it as very... a thriller, I believe. I think it's I think it's supposed to be a thriller. Yeah. I think it sounds up both of our alleys, honestly. And uh um, Oh sure. Yeah. You know, with it getting this sort of praise, um that really excites me because you know, I didn't enjoy Triangle of Sadness as much, but I did really, really love those other two. Um neon palm door winners and i generally think the palm door does a good job of, of picking you know a really strong film as the as the winner so um definitely one to look out for scott i don't know if this has like a obviously we know it's going to come out because it has um neon's name behind it but i was looking to see if there's a u.s release date it doesn't look like there is well, yet, i think they just so. acquired it like a week or two like they acquired okay. it like right before the the Cannes film festival yeah. i believe so it's not surprising. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna be in all the. It's the kind Wars. of movie since yeah. it's international, like an international film. It's probably gonna be at a bunch of fall festivals before it actually releases. Yeah, it'll probably in be the... at Venice and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, um, definitely one to keep an eye on there, Scott. I'm pretty excited for it, honestly. Now after you know it wins this award and and finding out what it's about and everything. Yeah, but that's uh, that's the wrap up from the Cannes Film Festival. Lots of stuff to to look forward to. And, you know, again, I appreciate it for putting a couple of new films on my radar that. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, be if you rewind to last year, we weren't necessarily talking about all of the films. I mean, we were certainly talking about the Palm Door winner, like Triangle of Sadness, things like that. But, you know, we weren't necessarily talking about After Sun, but it is that kind of thing where it debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. And, you know, it, it's important to look at these movies and find some because usually one or two of them are going to end up you know some of our favorite movies of the year it seems like based on history all right scott that should do it for episode 237 of some like it scott where can people find you on social media i'm at scarby down on all platforms you can find me at shelton 2013 on twitter letterbox serialized don't forget to also check out our podcast patreon 
at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, that's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz so we continue to reach a broader audience. Scott mentioned it at the top, but we do have the Anderson countdown ongoing. I think we are nearing the end. I believe we just released the Grand Budapest Hotel this past week. So when this I think podcast is released, Moonrise. I believe either that or Moonrise Kingdom. I can't remember. One or the other. The point is we are in prime West territory right now. Please check it out. We are very excited for the upcoming Asteroid City. I think we are recording our final episode of the countdown uh, in the next couple days. Tomorrow. I don't remember. I should remember tomorrow, these things yes. better. Tomorrow. Good. Okay. Yes. Tomorrow. So uh, take a look at that. And then, of course, we will be having the sort of culmination of our countdown with a review of Asteroid City in a few weeks. We really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us today. Chat about The Little Mermaid. We'll be back next week with a review of the much-anticipated sequel to 2018's best animated feature film, in my opinion. Uh, This new one, of course, is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. We hope you'll join us for that next week. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.